good, good morning. Man, is today a great day to be alive in Austin, Texas, or what? Wow. Man. I think the only people who are having more fun than us in Austin are people in Mississippi today. My goodness. I knew that that hiss was coming. I knew it. But listen, here's the deal. You, you got to give it up for Mississippi. I mean, let's be honest. They were due. I mean, they, they've been, Mississippi's been waiting for a win like that since my wife was born there. So anyway, we're excited that you have chosen to be with us today. You know, Johnny Cash was a complicated man. In the words of Chris Christopherson's song, The Pilgrim, that Cash at least partially inspired, he's a poet, he's a picker, he's a prophet, he's a pusher. He's a pilgrim and a preacher and a problem when he's stoned. A walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction, taking every wrong direction on his lonely way back home. That's a great description of who Johnny Cash was. I mean, here's a guy who was literally in the delivery room at the birth of rock and roll there in Memphis with Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins. But He's probably most widely remembered as a country music artist, one of the highwaymen with Waylon and Willie and Chris. And yet late in his life, when he should have been slowing down, he, that was when he began collaborating with people like Sheryl Crow and, and Bono, Jay-Z and JT, Justin Timberlake, um, Adam Levine, Chris Martin. All these new rockers wanted to collaborate with Cash. And it was late in his life when he collaborated with Rick Rubin, who used to be a hip-hop record producer, that he created some of the strongest music of his entire life. And it was during this phase that Cash returned repeatedly to the theme of his faith. Cash was truly a contradiction. He was a friend of Billy Graham, and he was an addict. He was a man who could be loyal to a fault and unfaithful in marriage. And yet through it all, from the incredible highs to the terrible lows, Johnny Cash remained convinced of the reality of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Late in his life, when he began partnering and collaborating with people like Tom Petty, he he would cover songs by Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor, even bands as diverse as the 80s and 90s MTV sensation Depeche Mode. And and as Beavis and Butthead tells us, (laughs) Depeche Mode is French for we're wussies. But Cash could take a song from Depeche Mode and make it his own. When Johnny Cash sang Depeche Mode, it was clear beyond any reasonable doubt that for John R. Cash from Dias, Arkansas, Jesus was very personal.
so much for being here today. We want to close with prayer. I'm just kidding. Man, my goodness. Here's the deal. Personal Jesus makes everything better. Personal Jesus makes everything better. You know, it was months ago that I actually read a relatively new biography on Johnny Cash, written by a music critic from the LA Times. And it's an incredible story behind the story of what we kind of know from what we've seen on the surface. And as I read through this story, and Cash kept returning again and again, musically and personally, to his faith, I was amazed at his survival. I'm not talking about the things that he withstood personally and emotionally and spiritually. I'm talking about the fact that he survived physically. The number of times that Johnny Cash should have died is absolutely mind-blowing. 
But when you read through this story, you can't help but realize that Cash lived out in bold HD color for all the world to see the reality that personal Jesus makes everything better. And that's really where this series came from, is from that idea, from that reality that no matter where you are, no matter what challenges you walked in the door carrying today, no matter how long you may have been a Christ follower or if you're not a Christ follower, looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ through the lens of the life of Johnny Cash is an incredible object lesson. And here's the lesson, that no matter what your life looks like, no matter how cluttered or ordered, no matter how messy or how tidy, no matter how wealthy or how poor, how famous or not famous, no matter where you are, the gospel of Jesus, the personal Jesus makes everything better. Now, the gospel, according to Cash, was a little bit of a risk. We, we kind of did that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because, obviously, Johnny Cash, as far as we know, did not contribute anything to the biblical record. But the fact of the matter is that Cash believed wholeheartedly in the promises of Jesus. Cash knew that God was real, that God loved him no matter what he had done, no matter where he had been. And I think it's a great reminder for us to really and truly look at the real, personal Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 16 is probably the most often quoted verse in the entire Bible. Some of you, if you're old like me, you'll remember the guy who had the big rainbow afro back in the 70s who held up a poster between the goalposts and NFL games saying, John 316. How many of y'all remember that? Now that I've called us old, let's just be in it together, okay? If, you're, if you don't remember ever seeing that, then you're not 40. But the fact of the matter is, John 316 is one that a lot of people know and have at least heard or seen before. But John 316 as powerful as it is, is actually part of a broader conversation that Jesus had one night under the cover of darkness. The Bible records it for us in John chapter 3. At the very beginning, a man by the name of Nicodemus, say Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to see Jesus secretly one night. Now the reason biblical scholars think Nicodemus came at night was because he was a part of the sect known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect of biblical Israel that had kind of come up through the ranks and they were the legal and biblical scholars of that day. They knew more about the law than anybody else. They were kind of the, the watchdogs and the guardian, the spiritual guardians of the culture of Israel in this day and age. And it was the Pharisees, interestingly enough, that Jesus was often in conflict with. Jesus often kind of tangled with them. Sometimes he would initiate the conflict. Sometimes they would bring the conflict to his door. But it's interesting, I think, just as a little aside to note that the personal Jesus did not mix well with religious folks. Isn't that interesting? It was religious folks that Jesus often had the most trouble with. It was religious folks who often had the most trouble with Jesus. And so it was because of this background, this backstory, that Nicodemus came to see Jesus late one night. And it was in this conversation that he had with Jesus where Nicodemus was trying to, to get at what was really going on that, that Jesus explained the gospel, that, that he, he brought it down and showed a religious man, 
as well as irreligious people, what it means to have a relationship with God. If you've got a Bible, take, take it out and look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, in verse 2, it says this. After dark one evening, he, being Nicodemus, came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is a really odd thing for Jesus to say. You know, we look at that with the, with the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. But Nicodemus is, is trying to get at it, and he approaches Jesus respectfully. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. He says, teacher, we know that obviously God has sent you to teach us some good things. You know, the, the miracles that you perform show us that God is with you. And Jesus goes right at the heart of the matter. Look at what he says here. He says, what he's telling Nicodemus, what, what John chapter 3 is saying to you and to me is that personal Jesus can't be invented, but he can be known as is. Personal Jesus can't be invented, but he can absolutely be known as is. You see, Nicodemus was trying very, very subtly to pigeonhole Jesus. He, he was trying to find the, the right slot religiously for Jesus to fit into, to call him a rabbi, to say that he was sent from God, to say that he did mir miraculous things. We've seen people do all these things. We've seen people sent from God. We've seen people who are rabbis. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. This is where the phrase born again comes from. It's not rocket surgery. It comes from the mind of Jesus himself. I did that on purpose, by the way. It comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. To be born again means that you move from not alive to being alive. And Nicodemus asks kind of the question that's inherent in this whole thing. He goes, he says, well, what do you mean born again? Can, can a man enter his mother's womb and, and be born again? And, and Jesus then dives into this conversation with him. You know, I think all of us understand what it means to try and invent personal Jesus. To use that song from Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode sang personal Jesus as a metaphor for unrealistic romantic expectations. Anybody ever had unrealistic romantic expectations? Let me just see a show of hands. We ought to give out t-shirts. But in the hands of Johnny Cash, personal Jesus became a statement of faith. He, he was saying, my Jesus is personal. My Jesus is real. Because from Johnny Cash's mouth and by all accounts, he was genuinely born again. Now, he messed up a lot. He would have been the first to tell you. But he was born again. He had trusted Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. He understood that in sin, we are dead. And, and that's not a metaphor. It's not like, oh, man, you're dead. You're going to get it now. No. It means that we are removed from the source of life. God who created us, who created us in his image for the life that is truly life. When I sin, when you sin, we're separated from that life. And when you're separated from life, 
you did. Now, we may be walking around carbon-based, taking in oxygen, putting out carbon dioxide and coffee fumes, but spiritually speaking, we're dead. And unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. For Nicodemus, this was crazy talk. Nicodemus had built his entire life around the rules and the regulations and the rituals of religion. And Jesus said, it ain't about that. It's about the relationship. It's about being born again, about receiving forgiveness for your sins. I had to receive forgiveness for my sins. It wasn't enough that I was born into a Christian home. My mom and dad both taught Sunday school. My dad was a deacon in the church, but I had to come to a place where I was born again. Jesus is saying, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't be good enough. This is what a lot of people try to tell themselves, try to tell each other. I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. I mean, I've never killed anybody. I, I, I pay my taxes. I don't kick the dog. I don't cuss unless the golf shot goes errant. I'm a good guy. And our problem is we don't understand God's definition of good. God's definition of good is moral perfection. Moral perfection. That's what's good. And I can't get there on my own. What we've always said here in our church is if you spent the rest of your life at the corner of 6th Street in Congress helping little old ladies cross the street, you could never do enough good to get to God. Because there'd be part of that act of helping little old ladies cross the street at 6th in Congress that would be kind of like, man, I'm really being nice. I mean, I, I'm a good guy. And, and there's, there's portions, there are slivers of self that seep into every action we do apart from Christ. But in Christ, all of our unrighteousness, all of our good deeds, all of those things are made good. We step out of not alive, out of death, into life when we were born again in Christ. And that's what the gospel is all about. That's what he's getting at here with Nicodemus. He's trying to show him, Nicodemus, personal Jesus makes everything better. You see, if the rules and the regulation drive the relationship, the relationship is doomed. But if the relationship drives the rules and the regulations, then the regulations and the rules and the religion can have some real life and meaning in them. Personal Jesus makes everything better. Last week, Julie and I got to go to South Carolina to visit our daughter, Emily, for Parents Weekend. Parents Weekend in Charleston is a great time to reunite, but ultimately it's an opportunity to eat. And I've noticed since Emily chose the College of Charleston to attend, I have never had a bad meal in Charleston. I've never had a bad meal. If you're looking for a place to go, a couple's getaway, man, I recommend Charleston. And we went last weekend to a restaurant we had never visited before called the Hominy Grill. And there at the Hominy Grill, I ordered what you order when you get to Charleston, which is, of course, shrimp and grits. That's just what you do. That's what God wants you to do when you're in Charleston. And so I ordered the shrimp and grits, and when they brought it to the table, there was something in the shrimp and grits that I didn't recognize. And, and I got concerned 
I was like, man, they have jacked up shrimp and grits. This sacred dish, they've messed it up. And so we were there with Emily and some of her friends, and so I wasn't trying to embarrass her in this particular moment. And I, I want to, so I was kind of, I'd take a bite on my fork or my spoon, and then I'd engage in conversation and take it away. But what I was really doing was sniffing it, trying to see what was in the, the dish that I didn't recognize. And on about the second whiff, it hit me. In my shrimp and grits, they put bacon. They put bacon in my shrimp and grits, man. How many of you know that whatever you eat, bacon makes better? I mean, bacon just helps everything from a culinary standpoint. Well, what bacon does for our food, the personal Jesus does for our lives. There's not one part of your life that's not better with Jesus at the dead center of it. Every single part of your life. How many of you are single? You're not married. Let me see a show of hands. If you're not married, show of hands. That's all. Come on. Listen, if you're single, your dating life is better with Jesus at the center of it. How many of you are married? Let me see a show of hands. Oh, trust me when I tell you, your marriage is better with personal Jesus at the center of it. How many of y'all maybe are students? You're, you're not yet out on your own, but you are counting down the days till you can move out, make your own decisions, and buy your own stuff. I just want you to have the whole picture of what you're facing. Tomorrow when you go to class, personal Jesus makes that better. Personal Jesus at the dead center of your relationship with your parents and how you handle yourself will make it better. I promise you. Personal Jesus makes everything better. And what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is that you can't invent him. You see, a lot of us try to invent Jesus. If you've ever heard somebody say or you've ever said, well, I don't know if I can believe in a God who dot, dot, dot. Or, well, I just know that God would never, Jesus is not going to dot, dot, dot. Then you know you're trying to invent Jesus. You're trying to make Jesus in the image you want him to be when, in fact, we were created by God in the image of God. We don't get to determine who Jesus is. We can't invent personal Jesus, but we can absolutely know him as he is. And Jesus was telling Nicodemus here, this is not a negotiation. This, this is not something where I make a special deal with you because you're better than that guy and I'm grading on the curve and come on in. We won't tell anybody about that stuff that nobody knows about. That's just between you and that's not how God operates. Yes, he makes everything better. But he can't be invented. The conversation continues. And here Jesus does something that, that's really kind of odd to you and me in the 21st century. But for Nicodemus, it, it was a powerful, powerful statement. Remember Nicodemus said, well, how, how can a man be born again? I mean, he can't enter into his mother's womb, I certainly hope, and, and be born again. What is this all about? And, and Jesus puts a really fine point on it. Look what he says in verse 14 and 15. 
He's referencing something here from Numbers chapter 21 that Nicodemus would have been intimately familiar with. Jesus says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, the snake lifted up on a bronze pole, what in the world? In Numbers chapter 21, the nation of Israel is wandering through the wilderness. They have escaped Egyptian slavery, but they have not yet occupied the promised land. And during this time of wandering, the nation of Israel came under the judgment of God in the form of snake bites. People began dying right and left, snake bite after snake bite after snake bite. Moses intervenes for Israel. And God told him to fashion a false serpent. Put a snake on a pole and lift the pole up is basically what God told him. And every person who chooses to look at that snake object in faith will be healed of their snake bite. And one by one by one by one by one by one, God began healing. Now, there was nothing mystical or magical about the snake itself that they looked up at. God just said, if you look at that snake with faith in your heart, I'll heal you. And Jesus then uses that object and says, if you look on the cross with faith in your heart and believe that you can be forgiven of your sins, you will be healed of that which is broken. What he's telling Nicodemus here is so important. Personal Jesus can't be manipulated, but he can be trusted. He can't be manipulated, but he can be trusted. And that trust is really the essence of this relationship. Isn't trust the essence of every relationship? I mean, even superficial business relationships are built on trust. You may have to trust but verify, but you've got to trust somebody. The most intimate relationship that there is, humanly speaking, between husband and wife. Man, for that to work, there's got to be trust. And as a matter of fact, that's the exact example that God uses to illustrate the effect of sin. When I sin, when you sin, God says that's essentially like marital unfaithfulness. We're being unfaithful to the one who called us. That's what God says. Now, the trust is restored. The trust that is broken is repaired in Jesus Christ. When you understand that he went to the cross for you personally by name, that you don't get to cut a special deal because you're a good guy or a good girl, but that it is ultimately by his hand, by his grace that we're forgiven, then we quit trying to manipulate him. We quit trying to be better than the next guy or hope that God's grading on the curve or maybe he didn't see a few things and we'll get in by the skin of our teeth or the hair on our chinny-chin-chin. And we just come to a place where we trust him, where we choose to trust God more than we trust ourselves. It's essentially a place of surrender. It's essentially a place where we say, God, I can't. I can't. I think that's probably why a lot of men have trouble. Because there's something inside of us, that testosterone that can be such an incredible gift to the world. Let's be honest, it can also work against us. I mean, it's tough. 
women have their own set of issues, but men have to, that's not a revelation, I hope. We have different challenges. But, but for a guy to surrender, for a guy to say, God, I can't. For a man of any age to say, I need help, is to say, I will trust you more than I trust myself. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you know about the serpent in the wilderness. You know what Moses did when he lifted it up. You know the people were healed when they looked on the serpent with faith. But that's what this is all about. It's about trust. It's about choosing to trust God more than you trust yourself. And then we get to John chapter 3, verse 16. Then, and only then, does Jesus say to Nicodemus, for this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will never die but will have eternal life. This is how God loves the world. This is how deep and how wide. This is what it is all about that he gave his one and only son. You and I look at that phrase, or maybe in the King James, remember the, the only begotten, the only begotten son of God. In the original Greek, that phrase means the one and only, the unique. It doesn't just mean that God has an only child. It means that Jesus is the one and only This is how much God loves you. When you see God loves the world there in John 3, 16, I think the tendency a lot of times is to think intergalactic, cosmos. And it's true, God loves the cosmos and the world and the galaxies and all those kind of things. But never forget that the world means you. The world means me personally by name. And for some people here today, that is a radical concept to think that God loves you, that he is for you. I had a conversation this week with, with a friend of mine, and we were comparing notes. I told him we were getting ready to start this series. He doesn't go to church here regularly. And so we're starting this series this weekend called The Gospel According to Cash. And we kind of started talking a little bit. He said, you know, he goes, I grew up going to one of those churches, and it, there was a lot of like, like hellfire and brimstone. And, and I just felt like when the preacher talked about hell, he was in a good mood. And I said, man, I, I hear you. I've, I've seen those kinds. I didn't grow up around that. I, I grew up in a, in a phenomenal church family, but I understand that. And, and I think a lot of times we, we trivialize hell by making it a cartoon. But I don't think we ought to necessarily enjoy hell. But understand that hell's real. Hell is real. Hell is just the eternal fulfillment of your temporary desires. Whatever you want in this world, if you want to reject God, if you want to step away from him and deny him, then God says, fine. Then that, that will be your eternity. That's real. On the other hand, if you choose to receive God, 
If you choose to embrace him, doesn't mean you're perfect or everything's going to be great, but you've chosen to give him everything that you have to the best of your abilities and to walk with him, then that will be your eternity. That's your choice. So it's not like God is, is sitting up there looking, who can I send to hell? <laughs> it's not how God operates because remember, God so loved the world. First Peter tells us that God is slow and patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus rose from the dead, because that's the heart of God. He is for you. He is for me. And, and so it's important for, for us to understand when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the personal Jesus, Jesus is not, did not come to earth to judge, to condemn. Jesus gets into this with our man, Nicodemus. With Nicodemus, he says in verse 17, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. See, God gives us the opportunity to receive or to reject Jesus. It's real simple. Now, it's profound. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's very simple and straightforward. And that's what Jesus is teaching us through this conversation he had with Nicodemus under the dark of night. He's saying, this isn't about judgment. This isn't about hellfire and damnation. Although hell is real, so is heaven. And I want you to know heaven. The reason he came was to save us. To, to save us from what? Well, to save us from death. To save us from separation from God. First time our family ever took a vacation, we kind of pulled a Clark Griswold and drove forever, it felt like. We drove from Austin to the Grand Canyon, and then we went from the Grand Canyon up through Four Corners to Gunnison, Colorado, drove from Colorado coming home. When we were in Colorado, our family, when Emily and Joseph were little, they were probably, like, I think, eight and six years old, something like that, maybe seven and five. They were little. We went whitewater rafting in Colorado in the summertime. And everybody was so excited, and you get in, and you, you, know, you step into the water, like, whoo, that's cold. And, and at one point along this ride down the river, just outside of Gunnison, we hit some kind of class three and class four rapids. And as I said, Emily and Joseph were, were little. And I could see it happening as we started to go down. Joseph was right on the side of the, the boat, and, and he was little, six years old, and and I saw him lose his balance and start to go in. And when I saw that happen, I reached for him, but he went into the water. And I, I kept reaching for him. And I grabbed him. I pulled him up. I go, hey, bud. Hey, I got you. It's okay. Because I didn't want you know, like, whoa, it's okay. You don't. And like that, that Colorado summer river water, man, is freezing. He's shivering. And he goes, Dad, can we go home? I said, yeah, buddy, we, we're going home, but we got to finish the ride. You see, the gospel is not just Jesus reaching into the river and pulling us out. 
The gospel is how we finish the ride. The gospel is how we live our lives day in and day out. The personal Jesus comes alongside of us. He says, yeah, I'm going to pull you. I'm going to save you. But together we're going to finish the ride. That's what Jesus is communicating here in John chapter 3. But he explains the judgment thing because there's something that's gnawing at us. When it comes up, we, we, we want to understand this. Nicodemus wanted to. And he said this, and he said in verse 19, the judgment is based on this fact. Notice the word that Jesus used there, a fact. God's light, Jesus, came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, personal Jesus can't be avoided, but he can be refused. You see, by virtue of the fact that you have now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't avoid a choice. That you can refuse him. And just to be clear, no choice is a choice. No choice is a choice. How many of you men ever proposed marriage to, to your wife or wives? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay, when, when, you, when, when a guy gets down on that knee, you know what I'm talking about. You know. Will you marry me? And she's standing there. At some point, He's thinking, say something. If I need to wait for a yes, I'll wait. But say something. Because no choice is a choice. You have a choice to make. Do you receive Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life or do you reject him? That's the choice. That's the reality, that's the fact of the gospel. See, we, we are a little bit afraid of the light, aren't we? There, there, there's part of us like, eh, I don't know, everything's going to be known. He's, I, when I was a little kid, I got in trouble with my mom one time. She came into the room. I knew I was in trouble. And, and I looked at her and I said, don't come, don't tell me things. <laughs> a lot of times we do that with God, don't we? Don't come, don't tell me things. Don't, don't tell me I was wrong. Instead of saying, I was wrong. And I need your forgiveness. I need your grace to turn away from that. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I ask you to bow your heads because we're on holy ground right now. And I want to invite everyone to pray. If you're here today and you've made a choice to follow Christ, then I want to invite you to pray. A couple of things. Pray for maybe that person that you invited and brought with you this weekend. But at the very least, I want you to pray 
and ask God to show you how personal Jesus can help in some area of your life. Where do you need more Jesus? Where does Jesus need to be more central in your life? But to another group here, if you've never chosen to follow Christ, I want to invite you to do it right now. To trust him more than you trust yourself. And in just a moment to pray a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. It doesn't take an elaborate ceremony. It just takes everything. Giving everything to him in response to the fact that he gave everything for you. If that's you this morning, right now, I just want to invite you to pray. In your words, something like this, just say silently right where you are, just say, Jesus, I need you. I trust you more than I trust me. And I give you my life from this moment forward forever. I confess my sin. And Jesus, I claim your forgiveness to be born again spiritually in you because of you. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain in a spirit of prayer with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. But if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, you need to understand something. You need to mark this moment. Because it's the most important moment of your life. You need to mark it and, and just make a note that Sunday, October the 5th, 2014, was real. And that was where my life changed once and for all. If that was your prayer, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you to raise your hand just right now, just silently but clearly, high above your head, just raise your hand and mark this moment. And as you do, to know that this is the greatest moment of your life. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that when one person steps over that line of trust, over that line of faith, all of heaven celebrates it. And so as you put your hands down, as a church family, we like to put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.